Welcome back to The Common Christian Diet. I'm Paige and want to give a shout out to Debbie Forrest for her song called Born Bad. Today we are starting episode number 11, which is titled, But God, It's Sugar-Free. I remember when low-fat and fat-free foods were all the craze back in the 90s. I was in the very early stages of learning about diet, nutrition, and exercise, and unfortunately for me, I was getting much of my basic information from places like Snackwell commercials. They advertised an entire product line of cookies and other sweets that were developed specifically for this fat-free diet strategy. And I loved it because, according to the plan, as long as I limited how much fat I consumed, I could basically eat anything I wanted. Just to put this in perspective, candy corn is a fat-free food. And I'm pretty sure candy corn alone explains how I gained 5 pounds in one Halloween season. But even worse than binging on pure sugar was a brand new fat-free product called Olean. Olean was an oil that the body can't digest. Now I say was in past tense because this product is no longer on the market and it's actually banned in some countries. But back in the 90s, Olean was introduced as a way of making crunchy foods like potato chips into a fat-free delight. This may sound ridiculous over two decades later, but younger me did not question the science. I heard fat-free potato chips and I rushed to the grocery store. My favorite brand was the Wow Cheesy Flavored Ruffles and I would buy the family size bag and eat them until my hands were orange. Now looking back, I see all sorts of red flags with Olean and the entire fat-free craze in general. Like, why did I think it was okay to devour all that sugar simply because it had no fat? Why did I think a bag of potato chips eaten by the handful was okay just because it was smothered in a product that my body can't actually digest? What did I actually think was happening inside my digestive tract? And I really don't have to use my imagination too much because, well, wow, potato chips had some noticeable side effects, as you can probably imagine. The fat-free diet plan didn't last all that long, mostly because people figured out pretty quickly that it didn't work. But even if it had actually been good for me, I still had a problem with taking something good and devouring it. It's like I lived by the rule that if a little is good, then more is better. But I had a habit of getting good things way out of balance. In other areas of my life, I actually had a decent amount of discipline and self-control. I exercise regularly, I maintain a healthy weight, I go to bed early, read my Bible, I've never smoked or done drugs, and I'm not addicted to anything except coffee, and even that I've given up on occasion. But as much as I value discipline and self-control, there have been several phases in my life where I took something that I thought was good and went crazy with it. I remember being a young teenager walking to my grandma's house after high school. She lived around the corner from the school and she always kept the house stocked with goodies for me like chocolate and Diet Coke. Now with the chocolate, I had self-control because I had read all those teeny bopper magazines that warned me chocolate was both fattening and could cause acne. So if I wanted any chance of dating Kirk Cameron someday, I needed limits on the cookie jar. But Diet Coke, on the other hand, was fat-free, sugar-free, and calorie-free. As far as I was concerned, it was good for me, and I would practically challenge myself to drink as many cans as I could until my mom picked me up. This habit of taking quote-unquote healthy foods to an unhealthy level over the years has included things like flavored coffee, natural peanut butter, sugar-free foods, and muscle-building protein bars. But the paradox in my mind about good versus bad food has led to some interesting outcomes. For example, to this day, I have never one time gone to a vending machine, put in money, 
selected a candy bar, and eaten it. I could never justify the calories and fat in a candy bar, so I always got something like pretzels or a bag of cute little animal crackers. However, I have on many occasions purchased a jar of natural peanut butter. You know, the kind you need to mix in all the oil on top before you can spread it on a sandwich. And I would come home from the store, scoop the peanut butter into a bowl, and begin to stir in the oil. And lick the spoon. Stir and lick the spoon. Stir and lick. Stir and lick. So many times that once it was thoroughly mixed, a third of the jar was gone. Now, in reality, that peanut butter binge probably had all the fat and calories of three candy bars. But in my head, the peanut butter was somehow good for me and therefore had no limits. I guess because it was sugar-free or natural or whatever. But my ability to overindulge in things that I perceive to be good for me is not limited to food. It turns out I can take almost any good thing to a borderline obsessive level. I've done this with exercise, success on my job, and even things like finances. Now, I've always been a saver, which is a good thing, but at one point in time, I was so fixated on paying off my student loans that I would turn down dinner plans and movies and literally sacrifice relationships just to throw a few more bucks at my debt. That might seem reasonable if I was drowning in debt or unable to pay basic living expenses, but the truth was I was doing quite well financially and I was simply prioritizing my bank account over my relationships. I allowed this idea of paying off my student loans in less than five years to drive my decision making. And besides things like Diet Coke, natural peanut butter, and financial status, now I'm going to describe another area of my life where I was focused on something good, and I was so focused on this good thing that I got my priorities a little out of order. It's the area of motherhood. Now, I've mentioned before about the challenges of raising my son on my own and some of my failures as a mother, but this episode has a different spin. I'm going to talk about some of the things I got right, just in the wrong proportions. My son was two years old when we set off on our own. I was bound and determined that I was going to be a good mother and not let this major life change affect him any more than it needed to. I was going to play with him all the time, teach him to read, take him all sorts of places, and just make life fun. And the truth was, I got a lot of those things right. He did well in school, was active in sports, he had birthday parties and sleepovers, we took trips and had date nights and have lots of great memories. Now, I want to be clear that I don't regret a single moment spent with my son. I wouldn't go back and change any of that. But what should have been different is that I treasured him so much that I put him on a pedestal. He was the highest priority in my life, even above God. I didn't understand the concept of idolatry at the time, and even if someone would have explained it to me, I would not have cared. I was my son's only caretaker, and if I didn't give him the time and attention that he needed, nobody else would. It was important that I be a good mother. His quality of life was literally depending on it. I remember a point in time when I was actually proud of the fact that I loved my son more than I loved God. I was still single and trying out different Christian dating sites looking for my future mister. I read profile after profile of men describing themselves with things like, God is absolutely first in my life, followed by family and then work and friends. They usually clarify that nothing is more important to them than their relationship with God. Every time I read that, I would just skip over that person because I thought, how could he possibly be a good father figure to my son if kids aren't the most important thing in his life? Now show me a profile with a decent looking guy that says kids are numero uno and let's go have dinner. But the Bible is very clear on how our priorities should be set. 
We must love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. We must not worship idols, even if the idol is our own flesh and blood. This sounded almost arrogant to me at first. What kind of God doesn't want a mother to love her kids as much as possible? I really had no understanding as to why loving my son more than anything else could be a bad thing. But God is a jealous God, and for good reason. I reflected back to a time when my son was playing peewee football in the sixth grade. He was 11 years old, and this was his fourth year of youth football. It was considered his senior year because it was the last year of peewee before moving up to the junior high level. He played with the same team and with the same coaches for all four years, and it was like family. Moms all chatted on the sidelines while kids ran drills. Dads gave the boys extra help throwing and catching between practices, and all the families piled into the bleachers every Saturday in the scorching Houston heat to watch our young men play. We didn't know how well this final senior year season would go since our boys were officially the smallest of 14 teams in both height and weight. We had smart, fast, talented kids, but most of them had just started their growth spurt compared to boys on the other teams who looked like they might have driven themselves to the game. I had prepared my son to focus on just playing his best and not worrying too much about how many games they might win. They knew they were small. Sometimes the other team's players stood a full helmet taller than our boys. But our munchkins won their first game. And the second, third, fourth, and fifth. The sixth game was off to a rough start and we were down by two touchdowns at the half, but the kids stayed strong. Parents prayed on the sidelines while the coaches preached to the team that they could still win this game if they put everything they had into it. Then they took the field and scored. Then they forced a fumble, recovered the ball, scored again, and won the game. I praised God and started thinking he had plans for this team. Everyone knew what an accomplishment it was for such a small team to be winning, and there were even articles in the Pee Wee News Arena comparing our team to the David and Goliath story. I wanted to believe God had something special planned. As the season continued, they beat one of the best teams in the league, bringing them to a perfect 8-0 record. I firmly believed God wanted them to win as badly as I did. I imagined our team as Pee Wee Super Bowl champions. But the little Davids fell apart in Game 9, and Game 10 was even worse. Not only did we play the worst game of the season, but one of our boys left the field in a sea collar and an ambulance. At home, I raged about my disappointment and how I felt God let us down. My first and primary prayer before every game is for the kids' safety, for all the kids on both teams. I felt abandoned. If God wasn't going to give us the win, at least he could have protected our players. And just for the record, God did protect our little player who was cleared by the doctors and back on the practice field the following Monday. But I didn't know that during my little rant. Our next game was the beginning of playoffs. It was time to shake off the defeat and get back to winning. My son was excited because he had been told by the coaches that he would run the ball more this game than normal. Maybe he would even get a touchdown. They practiced like they wanted to win and they were ready. I prayed all morning. As I took my seat in the stands, I prayed again. First for the kids' safety and second for a game they could all be proud of. I prayed for victory and I prayed specifically that my son would not fumble the ball. The game started with our team dominating, taking the ball all the way down just shy of the end zone. With less than five yards to go, my son was driving up the middle. This could be a touchdown. Except the defense grabbed him and spun him around so hard he let go of the ball and fumbled it. 
The other team didn't score on that fumble, but it didn't matter. We lost the game by one touchdown, and that game was the last time after four years that those 25 boys all wore the same uniform. The players were sobbing, and even the coaches cried as they gathered for one last team huddle. One of the hardest parts of being a parent is to watch your child hurt and not be able to make them feel any better. My son stayed in his room a long time after the game and didn't even take off his shoulder pads. When he finally spoke, he just told me that the coaches gave up on him. They never gave him another chance to run the ball. The coaches gave up on me, he repeated. In my mind, I felt like God gave up on him too. Whether my son was right or wrong, his pain was real. It stabbed me in the heart and I cried for him. Then my tears turned to anger. Why? Why didn't my prayers work? Why did we start with a David and Goliath story just to lose to the Giants? Even if they weren't supposed to win, did they have to fumble? Did they have to fumble so early in the game? Did my son have to be the one dropping the ball? I was so angry at God that I didn't want to go to church the next morning. And then I started to understand the problem with idolatry. As I was solely focused on my son and his happiness, I decided in my heart that he deserved a victory. I was angry at God for not giving me something that he never promised. Now what I wanted wasn't bad, but I wanted it so badly that I didn't leave any room for God to say no. If I laid out all my priorities on a table and put them in order of importance, my son's success would be at the very tippy top, and God's plans for my son would be, well, I don't know that I ever actually thought about God's plans for my son. I was his mother after all. Nobody knew how to raise him better than I did. Didn't I know best? As I loved my son more than God himself, I found that it affected the way I saw things. My focus was on my son and what I thought was best for him. And I was praying to a God that, in my mind, was there to help me make my son successful. While it was good for me to love him, guide him, encourage him, and try to be the best mother I could be, it was wrong to think I was a better parent than my Heavenly Father. What if God's way of loving him, guiding him, and encouraging him looked different than mine? What if God's path for his life didn't go down all the roads I mapped out for him? What if God's definition of success included some failures? Would I trust him? And the answer at that time was no. It took years to learn how to make God number one in my heart. I didn't know how to love someone I couldn't really see. I didn't know how to trust him, how to let him lead me, or how to look at God above my circumstances. I had always looked at God as a helper to me as I lived my life on earth, but I never considered that God was my total purpose for living. The idea of loving God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength never made sense to me until I finally put God on his throne and focused on him as my top priority. When I finally admitted that my son was an idol, I had to confess it to God. But at the same time, I was confused about what loving him was supposed to look like. When I realized I had an unhealthy obsession with Diet Coke and fat-free potato chips, I was able to remove them from my life completely. But I was never going to stop being my son's mother. I needed to find a way to love him, guide him, care for, and encourage him without placing him above God in my heart. It turns out I didn't need to love my son any less. I just needed to love God more. Loving God more meant seeking his opinion on my son's life rather than just expecting him to answer my prayers. Loving God more meant trusting God's plans for my son's life and knowing that sometimes God will let my son fail as a means of true success. 
Loving God more meant loving God no matter what, even if the results for my son's life were not what I wanted or prayed for. My son was 11 the day he dropped the ball in that pee-wee playoff game. He went on to play six more years of football all the way through high school varsity into the Texas 6A state quarterfinal playoffs. He experienced plenty more wins and losses, bruises and broken hearts, and even had his very own experience leaving the field in an ambulance. But he loved the game, and I loved watching him play. Looking back, I'm not sure losing that peewee playoff game actually had any long-term effects on him. I don't know that hanging on to that ball and even scoring the winning touchdown would have changed the outcome in any area of his life. And just maybe, dropping the ball and getting back on the field the following season taught him more about real life than simply winning. But it's funny to me now remembering how angry I was at God for letting my son fail. It was okay to want my son to succeed, but it was yet another example of taking something that was good and cranking it up to an unhealthy level. I've gotten a lot better at handling those drop-the-ball moments over the years, but I still get it wrong sometimes. Just recently, near the end of my son's freshman year of college, I found myself feverishly praying for him to do well in his final exams. His first semester was excellent, but the second semester was proving to be a little more challenging. The more nervous I was for him, the more I found myself praying specifically for things like a grade on his calculus test, or a physics assignment, or even things like, Lord, please make sure he wakes up to his alarm this morning so he doesn't sleep through class. But I knew in my heart that as I prayed these prayers, I was focusing on the success I wanted for him, and I was not trusting God with any of the details. So I repented again, as I have done many, many times, and I asked God to show me a better way. His response was simple. God led me to pray about my son's spiritual maturity and leave the details of a calculus test between my son and God. God's plans for my son's life may or may not include a college degree, but it most definitely includes a relationship with Jesus. God nudged me to stop praying for specific results like test scores and focus on more eternal things. In the long run, if my son is drawing near to the Lord, if he is disciplined in following Christ, if he is learning to discern God's will for his life, then he is already successful. For the last two weeks of the semester, I began praying prayers that I knew were aligned with God's will. I prayed for my son's heart to seek God's guidance. I prayed he would grow in wisdom and discernment. I prayed that he would turn to the Bible when he needed direction and persevere through his trials according to the Word of God. I prayed that no matter how he did on his exams, that he would draw closer to Jesus as a result. I'm not supposed to love my son any less or pray for him less. I just need to keep my priorities in order. I used to think God must be arrogant to demand I love him above all else, but once I tried it, I began to understand why it has to be that way. When I love God first, I'm so much better at loving everything else in my life. I'm actually a better, more patient, and more loving mother now than I was when being a mother was my highest priority. And today, when he fumbles the ball on occasion, I'm able to draw near to God for help rather than throw a temper tantrum. My son did drop the ball a little in his second semester at college, but God helped me see that the real success is that after a year away at a secular university, he never walked away from his faith. The calculus exam might not have been an A, but he's getting high marks from his Heavenly Father for maintaining his relationship with Jesus. Making God my focus gives me a new perspective and helps me balance all my other priorities. I am still a saver, but I'm a lot more generous. I still drink an occasional Diet Coke, but I no longer wish I could put an IV of the stuff straight into my arm. I still absolutely adore my son, but I can trust that God loves him even more than I do, and I can leave the details to him.
I don't do any of these things perfectly. But when something feels off balance, I know it's time for me to look up, refocus my attention on Jesus, and he will help me put down the peanut butter and make more healthy decisions. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Paige, and this the is The Common Christian Diet. Oh, and then we nurse the excuses when we want to stay the same. Every day. Of-